Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Here's another edition of 30 with Murdy, and this one actually focuses on basketball more than baseball. With the NBA Finals upon us, this conversation has a loose tie-in, but it has less to do with that than a personal connection I have with a former NBA champion. Dave Twardzik was the point guard on Portland's 1977 NBA championship team, the Walton Gang, led by Bill Walton. It was the highlight of an eight-year pro career for Twardzik, four years in the ABA and four in the NBA. He then spent about three decades in the NBA as an executive, building teams in Charlotte, Golden State, and Orlando, before returning to his alma mater, Old Dominion, as a TV and radio color commentator. But before all of that is what connects me with a player whose number is retired by both the Portland Trailblazers and Old Dominion University. Dave Twardzik is from Middletown, Pennsylvania, my hometown. And in my hometown, he is the most famous alum from Middletown Area High School, where I graduated 20 years after he did. Before he led fast breaks in the ABA with Julius Irving and in the NBA with Bill Walton, Twardzik led our school to the state championship in 1968, a team and a title that is still viewed with great reverence in our town. I first met Dave when I was a high school senior in 1988, and through my career at WFAN, I've had a few chances to reconnect with him, but never to reminisce quite like this. On the eve of the NBA Finals, I had a chance to chat with the man, the first man I ever met, that played in the NBA Finals, even held his championship ring, the first one of those I had ever seen up close. Here is my conversation with former ABA All-Star and former NBA champion, the pride of Middletown, Pennsylvania, Dave Twardzik. Obviously, the reason I want to talk to you is you're the most famous person from my high school, and I, oh. I rarely have one thing, uh, something like this in common with a professional athlete who has a championship ring and a resume like yours. So, I kind of want to get into first, like our common backgrounds. You know, we both grew up in Middletown, Pennsylvania. Uh, tell me about you know where you lived, where you grew up, and what what it was like uh, in in your early years there. Well, yeah, sweetie. Middletown was all I knew, really. Uh, as a kid, we rarely traveled. I didn't get out of Middletown very much, so it was a small town in central Pennsylvania, uh, about eight, 9,000 people. And uh, my first eight years of school, I went to uh, Seven Fathers Catholic School, and then when I graduated from eighth grade, I, I went to the public high school, Middletown Area High School, and uh, not knowing anything uh, any different, it was the best place to grow up. I wouldn't change uh, that part of my background for anything. So what did you do? Did you play basketball right away? Did you play other sports too? How did how did you, your athletic career begin at that age? Well, Sweeney, a typical uh, small town, you, you played multiple sports. Uh, I was not allowed to play football. Uh, I had two older brothers and my parents said no football for any of them. So uh, my oldest brother was a basketball and baseball player. My middle brother was back and field athlete in basketball, and uh, I was basketball and baseball. 
matter of fact, I, I probably growing up loved, uh, loved baseball more than I did basketball. Tell me more about that. Who did, like who did you watch? Who was your favorite team? Who were your favorite players? Well, growing up in uh, just out uh, not too far from Philly, uh, in Pennsylvania, you were either a Phillies fan or a Pirates fan, and I was a Phillies fan. Uh, they had uh, Richie Ashburn, Bobby Wine, Johnny Dallison, Richie Allen, Robin Roberts, Chris Short. So I, I was a big baseball fan, and I can remember whether I was out playing uh, pickup baseball or just throwing the ball up in the air and trying to simulate some game conditions. It would be, okay, it's the fifth game of the World Series. There's a hot pot fly in center field, and I was kind of fantasize <laughs> about baseball. That's great. Did um, you know? Did you guys get to go out to games much? Did you go out to Connie Mack Stadium as a kid? Yeah, uh, once, uh, once a year, the, uh, the the baseball the league would take a trip, so we would get on a bus and go down to Connie Mack Stadium, and we would see one game, hop on the bus, and come back home. That's fantastic. So, obviously, your um, your basketball career took shape. Uh, during your high school years, when you know, really, when did you start to get a feel for really how good you were on a basketball court? At what age was that? Well, I don't know. Individually, I never felt like I was really the best player or anything like that. I, fortunately, I was always on very good team. I know when uh, seventh and eighth grade, I think we won. We won our league. Uh, ninth grade, we were under. When I went to public school, we were undefeated uh, freshmen. And then, when I got to high school, uh, uh, we made the playoffs. And then we were fortunate enough to win the state my last year. Which, sweetie, I look back and, and we had a phenomenal team. And my recall is not really good. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago. <laughs> but that team really sticks out in my mind because we were uh, class B and when I was in school it was there were three classifications A, B, and C A the largest B the next largest and then C the smallest uh, I, I can, can remember this because we just had a kind of a informal reunion about a year ago we were 28 and 1 we won our first game lost our second and then won 27 in a row and uh one of the, one of my teammates brought the box scores in, but not the box score, but the season scores. We our average margin of victory was by thirty four. Yeah, wow. And we won we won the state. I think it was by thirty. And I, I don't think there was ever any feeling of being cocky or complacent. It was just hey, we won one game, and we have to look forward to playing the next one. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, you're right. It's incredible to think of the margin of victory and the winning streak. And I'm going to try to walk you through a little bit of this, and we'll test and see how, how, how good your memory is after all these years. The 1968 state championship team that you were on is legendary in our hometown. Uh, you know, for, and for somebody who grew up uh, years after, I'm, I'm 20 years after you in class of 88, you know that oh, sign. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that sign still, you know, is one of the first things you see in the gym, uh, in the old gym, and they now have a new gym there. But that sign that says 1968 state champions is one of the things that everybody notices, and it still draws your attention now over 50 years later. Uh, 
you know, I want to call some attention to some of the things you just mentioned, your margin of victory and your point totals. You're, you're scoring about 90 to 100 points pretty regularly. You know, in 1968, there's no shot clock in college, obviously, let alone in high school. What do you remember about the style of play and, and Coach Casper Voiderfer, who was your coach and was my high school principal, uh, what do you remember about how he implemented that style of play and what it was like in relation to the way others were playing at that time? Well, swimming, it, it was what we everybody called Middletown basketball. It was we pressed a lot. We varied our defense, whether it was uh, man-to-man. Uh, and most of the time it was man-to-man. If we weren't in man-to-man, we were in some kind of either man-to-man full court, man-to-man half court, or some kind of zone trap. And our philosophy was we wanted to get the ball and run. Um, we were patient. And the, the beauty of our team, I don't think we had any egos getting involved. Nobody felt like they had to score 22 or 24 a game. Scoring was evenly distributed. And when you're around and practicing that much, and you've been around a lot of sports teams, Every now and then gets a little bit chippy at practice. And, <laughs> yeah. And it, sometimes it escalates beyond the chippy point. I don't ever remember a practice like that. Wow. And uh, from when I came from Seven Sorrows, the, uh, the parochial school, to public school, from ninth grade on, it was the same system. What we learned in ninth grade, you carried it through to JV. From JV, you carried it through into varsity. So there was a lot of positive reinforcement in that. Were there a lot of teams running full-court press, running fast-break basketball the same way you guys were at that time? Yeah, I, you know, I really can't remember. Um, all I know is we wanted to play our game, and did we prepare for the other team? Sure, but we wanted to make sure we collectively knew what we were doing on the floor. So I, I think teams wanted to run, but we kind of took it to another level. One of the games that, again, people kind of talk about is, you know, in this run that you had to the state championship was against a future NBA player uh, in his own right. Tom McMillan was playing at Mansfield High School, and he was not yet a senior, uh, but he's the big man for Mansfield. It was the Eastern Finals, which is basically the state semifinals. He would, he would a year or two later be recognized by Sports Illustrated as the best high school player in America. And he would go on to a college career at Maryland. He played 11 years in the NBA. Uh, but you're playing his team for a trip to the state championship game. What do you remember about that? Well, we were a small team. Uh, our, our starting lineup we had, uh, our biggest guy was 6'4". Uh, after that, 6'2". I was about 6 feet. Now we had two five nine players. We really had kind of a three-guard system where I, I played guard also. And uh, I do remember that game. Uh, the first play of the game, Mansfield goes in to Tom. Uh, McMillan goes to take a shot, and our center blocks the shot. Now, we had never seen a player the size of Tom McMillan or nearly the skill of Tom McMillan. But that kind of set the tone for everybody. I mean, we were all jacked up, ready to play in that game. But when that happened, it was a block by Ed Chubb on uh, Tom McMillan. That just, you talk about a, a, an adrenaline rush and a release. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And then, uh, so, now, do you remember where that game was played? Our show arena. Yes, I do. Yeah, the uh, 
The first couple games in the district we played at the Hershey Arena, the old Hershey Arena, and then the, the last two we played, I think it was Whistler Hickson and then Mansfield in the Farm Show Arena. And then for the state finals, we went out to Pittsburgh. Okay, I've, I've covered plenty of games in the old Hershey Arena and the, state, the Farm Show Arena. Uh, those, are, those are phenomenal old-fashioned buildings for basketball. Uh, the Pittsburgh Civic Arena is another one of those old-style old uh, arenas uh, that was used out there. Now, as you said, you're a small-town kid who only knew Middletown. You made a yearly trip out to Philadelphia to see uh, the Phillies play. What do you remember about a trip out to Pittsburgh and playing in that big arena uh, against Team uh, East Brady in the state championship game? One thing that sticks in my mind is the number of people that made the trip from Middletown out to Pittsburgh. Uh, I don't know how many busloads of people they had, but the representation from Middletown, Middletown probably was a ghost town when we mm-hmm. played that game. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I do remember is the ABA had a franchise in Pittsburgh. Yep. It was a Pittsburgh, either the Pipers at that time or the Condors. And uh, we all went to that game. And one player I do remember seeing live was Connie Hoffman. And he did some things with the basketball that I, to this day, there are very few humans in the history of the sport that have been able to do things that he did. It's funny, you didn't have an iPhone to record it, and I'm sure there's not a lot of video of, of that in particular. Can you still picture watching Connie Hawkins on that floor in Pittsburgh? I sure can. Here was a guy that was about 6'8", could handle the ball, and usually back then, if you were 6'8", you were kind of a plotter. Uh, we weren't the athletes that there are today, but if you were 6'8", you were kind of a plotter. But here's Connie Hawkins coming down, dribbling the ball, and the big hydrogen his hands were huge. Everybody talks about the size of Doc's hands, Julius Irving. Tony Hawkins' his hands were so huge. I mean, what he did with the basket, it looked like he was handling a ping pong ball. <laughs> the, um, the state championship game, you win by 30 points. And, you know, it just struck me now <clears throat> that the way we're talking about it, the way you're describing it, it sounds to me a lot like the movie Hoosiers, you know, when you're watching the small town team travel to the big city and the busloads of people and kind of an underdog story. It never really struck me as that growing up and having known this story for all these years about how you guys won the title. Um, but when you've watched that movie or maybe when you saw it for the first time, did that kind of ring a bell with you as to maybe the experience you had? Yeah, it did a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I love the way, uh, and I don't know if Indiana is still doing it that way, but I love the way their format is for for their high school basketball. At the end of the year, there is one high school championship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talk that were we as good as the Class A state champion. Now, the only team we did lose to was Steelton. They were a Class A school, and uh, I think they ended up getting into the Eastern finals, but uh, I do like the way Indiana has their their tournaments at the end of the year, uh, and I don't want to oversell being from a small town, but really the only time I left Middletown was when we went on a road trip to play basketball or baseball. Mm. And I, we didn't vacation, so I was in Middletown probably <laughs> 99% of my life. There's a, there's a couple of names having spent all these years in Middletown that 
aren't going to mean a lot to a lot of other people, but I know that they ring true for both of us. And I want to, they, they mean something different to us because of the, the, the gap, the generation between us. But I want to, I want to get kind of your take on what these names mean to you. Uh, he, to me, my, he was my principal. He was Mr. Bruner. He was Ed Bruner, who was a legendary uh, basketball and track official uh, throughout the years. I actually got to call a game with him as my color commentator at the Penn State at the uh, uh, Harrisburg Farm Show Arena one time uh, in a state. Uh, I think it was a state or a district playoff game. Uh, but I got to have him as my color commentator when I was in ninth grade. Uh, you must have had him for basketball somewhere along the way. Well, when you say Mr. Bruner, two words pop into my mind. Respect and fear. <laughs> and I don't know if they're synonym, but I had total respect for Mr. Bruner. Anything he said, I, I thought it was the gospel. And you didn't want to get out alive either with him around or you didn't want to be set down to see Mr. Bruner. I have nothing but great things and great memories of Mr. Bruner. You know, it's funny. The other thing that I, I recall about him, and he had left the school as principal by the time I graduated. Casper Voiderfer was my principal when I graduated. But Ed Bruner used to read the names, not read, he would he would announce the names of the graduating seniors as they walked across the floor, but he would insist on not having a script or have the person's name written down. Over the course of your four years at the high school, he would get to know who you were. And when you walked across that stage, he knew by your face who you were and announced your name. And he would tell people that fear that you talked about, he would tell people, don't move until I announce your name. And like, he wanted to make sure, like, if he screwed it up, it was on him and he didn't want to get bailed out about it. Um, yeah, he must have done your graduation in some form or fashion. Or, or I, was he principal then? Do you remember anything about that? He absolutely was principal. Now, here's a guy who was about 6'4", in tremendous shape. I don't think there was an ounce of fat on him. So his presence among high school students was, to me, very intimidating. That's why respect, absolutely fear. It could be 50-50. Yeah, and his uh, his respect went, went worldwide. I mean, he was uh, given the responsibility, he was an official, a track official at the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Um, and he was, one of his responsibilities was making sure the events went on time. And uh, anybody who, who knew him knew that that was, he was going to make sure that happened. Um, there's another name that I know means something differently to us. When I was growing up, Olmstead was a shopping plaza. It was the name of the rec league where I played very badly played basketball at the Main Street Gym. Uh, Olmstead meant something different to you, didn't it? It sure did. Uh, and almost, as a matter of fact, Olmstead was where my father worked. It was an Air Force base, and uh, we lived in the Acres, which was not very far from the base. And uh, I think it was my junior year, we moved out to uh, kind of well, the country then, which is where the high school is now. But uh, the Air Force Base closed, and we almost moved out of Middletown because I can remember my father coming home and talking about, well, we might even move just outside of Atlanta or to San Antonio. Wow. But fortunately, yeah, fortunately, we were able to keep our roots in Middletown. He was able to get a job at Mechanicsburg uh, Naval Supply Depot. So it was very fortunate for me. I was able to stay in Middletown my entire life. And you're, as we've mentioned, uh, 1968, you're a senior in Middletown, the team wins the state championship, and you start getting attention for your play. 
How did you, you went to Old Dominion after that. How did that whole process go for you? Was there any sort of a recruiting process involved? How many other schools were, were involved with you? What, what drove you to Old Dominion to play college, to go to college and play college basketball? Yeah, really, before I go into the Old Dominion part of my life, uh, one thing about that, the team that won the state championship, every player on that team went to college yeah. and played some kind of sport. There were a couple of football players, a couple of baseball players, one one or two track guys, and then everybody else, the majority of us played basketball. But everybody on that team went on to college to play some kind of sport. So it was a very unique team. We all got along. And then, I, yeah, I say, it could be the best team I've ever been on. Wow. Now, the Old Dominion, the old, my Old Dominion, I had never heard of Old Dominion before. <laughs> I did not, I'll show you how smart I am, I didn't even know Virginia was the Old Dominion state. But I, <laughs> I go, I'm invited to play in a local all-star game, and it wasn't the Dapper Dan game, it was uh, a local game down, I believe it was in Lancaster. So I drive down to the game, as the game is ending, I go in, game's gone, shower, I start to walk out to my car. Gentleman comes up and introduces himself as Sonny Allen from Old Dominion College. Now, my first reaction was, Sonny Allen, never heard of him. Old Dominion College, never heard of him. <laughs> Let me get my car and go home. But <laughs> well, he starts to talk to me about where Old Dominion is. It's in it's in the southeast corner of Virginia. It's not far from Virginia Beach. Here's my style. I, I, I want to run every opportunity we get the ball out of the net. We want to get it out, get it inbound as quickly as possible, push it down the floor. Point guard is critical in my system, and you would be the point guard. You would have the ball 90% of the time and make about 90% of the decisions on the floor. And I'd like to, for you to come down for a visit. I'd like to fly you down on a Friday. You could spend Saturday, Sunday, and fly down, uh, fly back to Middletown on on Monday. Well, Sonny, uh, uh, when Sonny said that, Sweeney, a, a lot of things added up to positives. One, the the style with me being a point guard, mm-hmm. very very positive. Handling the ball ninety percent of the time, very positive. I was going to fly for the first time ever. Another positive, but the biggest thing was I was going to get out of school Friday and Monday. So I said, Sonny, I thought a lot of great things about you and your program. I'd love to come down. And it was my only four-year offer as a scholarship. Wow. And when my father heard that, he said, Son, you will love Norfolk, Virginia, and Old Dominion College. And boy, he was right. You couldn't have scripted it any better for me. Oh, that's a fantastic story. Now, you guys, you would have been, let's see, I guess it would have been 69, 70, 71. Your junior year, freshmen were ineligible to play back then still. Uh, Division two, Old Dominion back then was Division two still, and you made it to the championship game, Division two title game in your junior year. We did, yes. Uh, we ended up going to Evansville. Now, here's no home court advantage here. It's the Division two championship at Evansville, and we played Evansville, so... <laughs> Our fans were a little outnumbered, and uh, uh, we ended up losing to a very good Evansville team. As a matter of fact, they had a guy that I became pretty good friends with that made it into the league also. His name was Don Ducey, about a 6'3", 6'4", guard. So uh, it, it was a great, great experience for me. So I, my, around that time, 
I, I just got done reading Dr. J's autobiography, and I'll get to him in a second because you have a couple of different ways you cross paths with him. But he talks about the process of playing with some players in, in Team USA type uh, tournaments and getting ready for the Olympics in 72, which he never actually went to because he turned pro. But my question to you is, as, as a D2 guy, were, were you involved in any Team USA stuff? Did you cross paths? Were there summers where you played against any of these guys? What was that process like? No, there was no uh, opportunity for me to play in uh, Team USA uh, stuff or Olympic trials or pre-trials. Now, you have to understand, back then, I don't think it was as big of a machine as it is now. Sure. I think now it, it is a big machine where they try to go after. There is a bigger play, a player pool that they look at, but I don't think it was that way back then, so I really had no opportunity to, to try out for Team USA. Dr. J, as I find out, ends up leaving school early because of the way that the agents had approached him and told him that the NBA and ABA are now competing for talent and it might not be the case much longer if they merge. There's a there's a position here for a star player like him to maximize uh, dollar value by pitting the leagues against each other, and he ends up going to the ABA and the Virginia Squires. He arrived before you did, but 72, after Old Dominion, you are on the Virginia Squires, a teammate of 22-year-old Dr. J. First of all, how'd you get there, and what did you think when you saw him up close? Well, first off, I actually started working for the Squires in my junior year. Um, the, the building that they were going to play in, which is Scope, and it's been around since 72, that was not done yet. So they played on campus in our field house, which seated about 5,600 people. Mm-hmm. I was hired to be a staff runner, so really during timeouts, I'd be coming along and I'd be giving you stats and handing all the press stats and uh, Half time I go and knock on the door and go, who is the staff? I just stick my hand in the door and take the, take the staff away. And uh, at post game, same thing, knock on the door. Who is the staff? Yeah, come on in. So I, I had some contact with those guys. And uh, my senior year, I was drafted by Portland and, uh, and by Virginia, or I was a territorial pick from Virginia. I'm really not too sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, never went out to Portland. But I met with Harry Glickman, who was the uh, agent. I mean, he was their general manager Mm -hmm. in New York. And I really, uh, Portland was going to give me about, it's not going to sound like a lot of money now, but back then it was about $5,000 more over a two-year period. Mm -hmm. But I had had never been to Oregon before. I wasn't too sure about the style of the NBA because it was a slower style. ABA was more up and down, which is what I was used to. And it was, it was the franchise was in the town I had spent four years and really loved the area. So it was an easy decision to stay and play for Virginia. And then to get the opportunity to play with Doc, I think my first year I played maybe, I don't know, 18, maybe 20 minutes a game. Mm-hmm. I can remember sitting on the bench and if you and I were sitting next to each other, Doc would make a move and we'd look at each other and go, good gosh, do you believe that? <laughs> and then the best, though, was that practice. Al Bianchi was our coach. And Al was a, was, after the note, Al was a good coach, but his strength was handling personnel. His practices, we would go through the typical warm-up stuff. There was no stretching, no, 
you know, strength and conditioning coach to put you through any stretching. So you do your warm-ups, a little bit of instruction, you run through the offense, and then Al would let us play for about an hour of the practice. And he would let Doc just go crazy. Sweeney, some of the stuff Doc did still blows my mind. He is unbelievable. And when we were together, he, as good a player as he was, he was just like that as a person. So I'm guessing that when you were at the 1975 ABA All-Star Game in Denver, watching him dunk from the foul line probably didn't blow you away the way it blew everybody else away because you'd seen it before or or better. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, he would do that. Uh, I'm not going to say every day of practice, but when he was feeling good, and just now understand, like you said, he was 22 years old, not having any knee issues, so mm-hmm. his springs, his hang time, his hands, Oh, my gosh, what a combination. One of the things I, I, I loved hearing him talk about was, you know, how he'd always want to be the last one out of the gym. And after practices, he'd want one-on-one drills or just even his own drills. And sometimes you overlook that when you think about great players and great talent. You forget about how much work they actually put in. Now, you know, when he first came in, he wasn't a very good shooter from the perimeter. And uh, that doesn't happen by accident where you go from a poor shooter to a very good shooter. And when he added that to his game, the way he could take it to the basket, as creative as he was taking it to the basket, I mean, now you pick your poison. You play tight on him and let him drive. You lay off of him since he's so good putting it on the floor and let him shoot. Uh, a lot of credit for that. That's the natural ability, absolutely. But uh, I would agree, he was not one one of the first guys to leave the gym. He was usually the last guy. So as the ABA ends up folding and they merge a couple of teams into the NBA, you end up going back to Portland, and first you're in Portland, 76-77. Now you're matched up against Dr. J. You're with Bill Walton and that great Portland team. Dr. J's on the Sixers in the uh, NBA Finals. What, it, what was that series like? What was that experience like playing against him and watching him do things to the team you're, you're uh, up against now? Well, it's funny, the first year of the merger, whenever we go into uh, an ABA franchise where it was almost dominated by ABA players on that team, as opposed to during his personal draft, there might be one guy from the ABA on this team you're playing, uh, maybe two guys from another team that you're playing. But when we were going into the San Antonio, the Denver's, New Jersey, and Indiana, you tell these guys about the players, and you talk about Doc, and you go, you, you're not going to believe how good this guy is. <laughs> and they go, yeah, sure, yeah, right. We had barely even heard of the guy. After the game, it's like, oh, my God, you, you undersold the guy. He's much better than you did. <laughs> oh, he was unreal. And, you know, three, we had the ABA, we had a lot of talent come out of the ABA. Because if you look at the All-Star game for the first year, Half the team was from the ABA. Mm. The M- MVP of the All-Star Game, and the All-Star Game back then, don't even think about comparing it to the most recent All-Star Games now. But they, it was a game. They went after it. Doc was the MVP of the first All-Star Game, so you had half ABA players on the All-Star Team, and your MVP was a, a, an ABA player. Yeah, much different level of competition than when you think about a rival league because nowadays, you know, when you think about whether it's, you know, going back to the USFL or any other rival football leagues, we never really think about how 
those the competition in those leagues doesn't even come close to the competition in the top professional league. The ABA was a lot different in that regard. I mean, you guys had legit talent, and a lot of it crossed over into the NBA and, and kind of changed the game the way that game is played. Yeah, it sure did. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the starting team for the a- NBA Finals had five ABA players. Hmm. Doc, George McGinnis, Caldwell Jones, uh, Maurice Lucas, and me. Wow. And See, I can remember uh, preseason playing an NBA team. Oh, boy, did you get up to those games as an ABA, an ABA team and an ABA player. Your championship ring is the first one I ever saw. Now, I work around the Yankees for the last two decades. I've seen World Series rings. I've seen a lot of them. But the one you had on your finger from the 77 Trailblazers, first one I ever saw up close, it was at a reunion, uh, a 20-year reunion for you and the Middletown State Championship team that happened to coincide with the all-sports banquet my senior year in high school. And outside the auditorium, after everybody had left, I remember me and a couple of my buddies cornering you and, and basically getting you to do what, what I'm getting you to do now, is tell me stories about Dr. J and everything else. And we held a championship ring. And I, I saw a picture recently that was taken at the 50-year reunion you guys had recently in Middletown. And one of my friend's sons is holding your championship ring and, and taking a look at it. And I'm going, man, this is a, I, I did the exact same thing. Um, that that I know it, it's special for you because of what you accomplished, what it means. But you know the stories you're able to tell just by just by showing somebody that ring. That you know that must always bring back a lot of good memories. Well, it absolutely does. Uh, when I went out before, and I really had no idea was I going to be good enough to play in the NBA, what it was going to be like, like what kind of career I was going to have. And, my last year in the ABA, right before I went to Portland, I had broken my leg and I missed 40 games. So you know, I really wasn't too sure how how I would do out there, uh, what it was going to be like out there. It's the first time I'd ever been uh, uh, in the Oregon or even west of the Mississippi. So uh, we just fell in love with it. And I'll never forget, uh, it was about the fifth or sixth practice. And I, and I found this out much later than I started, I got into the coaching end of the NBA with Jack Ramsey. We were talking about our championship team and Jack said, Jack McKinney told me after about the fifth game, Jack McKinney was our assistant coach. He said, Jack, this team could be special. And sure enough, I mean, we had seven, I think it was seven new players, an entirely new coaching staff, and everything just clicked. Everybody bought into Jack Ramsey. He was our leader. Uh, whatever he said, we totally bought into it and believed it. You followed Jack Ramsey to Indiana and were on his coaching staff. That's when I met you the first time. This was in the late, mid to late 80s. I guess you had a young Reggie Miller on that team uh, at some point. But what what led you into the coaching path and then what led you out because you eventually moved into the, the front office type stuff? Um Tell me about your experience at the as on the assistant coaching level and, and, and why you chose to, to get out of that path. Well, first off, I, when I retired, I retired with a back injury. Uh, my last year in the league, I was on the injured list all year. I could never get healthy enough hmm. to play. Wow. So after that year, I retired. And two years prior to that, the general manager, the gentleman I spoke to in New York when I first got out of school, Harry Glickman, 
Harry said, David, I'm not trying to retire you, but have you ever thought about what you're going to do when you stop playing? And I said, Harry, I really haven't given it much thought, but I will definitely want to stay in this area. He said, well, would you consider working for us? He said, absolutely. I love this area. I love this team. I'll always bleed blazer black and red. Uh, and he said, well, think about what would you like to do? I said, Harry, honestly, I'd like to have your job one day. And he kind of flustered him a little bit. And then I got hurt, had to retire two years later, and I became director of community relations. So I did a lot of speaking and appearances for the club. And I did color on the radio, which was a great transition from being a player to a non-player. I was still around the team. I was going to the games. I'm, I'm wrapped up into the games. Maybe not as much as a player, but I'm still, I, I want the team to win every night. So the highs and lows of being around the team. After five years of that, Jack Ramsey gets fired in Portland, takes the Pacer job. The day he took the job, he called me up and said, David, uh, I'm, I'm taking the Pacer job. I want to ask you a question. Would you come with me on the bench as an assistant coach? I said, Jack, five years ago, if you'd have asked me when I first retired, I would have said, no way. <laughs> But being around the team, analyzing the game, the highs and lows, I would love to. He says, great. But let me give you two, two little things to think about. One, you should always have a house away from where you're working. I went, really? Okay. Then he said, I have a house in Ocean City I go to during the off season. You should always have a house outside the city of you work. I said, okay. What's the second thing, Jack? He says, we're going to get fired. <laughs> I just took the job 30 seconds ago. He said, Buffalo fired me, Portland fired me. If you're in this game long enough, it's going to happen. Well, you know what? He's right. Look how many coaches get fired. And uh, the experience with Jack Ramsey, it was the. Uh, I, I love Jack Ramsey. I, I looked at him as like a father to me. And Jack Ramsey, as a basketball mind, for, has forgotten more than any coach will ever know that's how good he was. You know, it's uh, it's funny, I, and I can't remember who exactly said it, but I always attribute it to Terry Francona, manager of the Cleveland Indians, and I, I think he's, he's the one I always remember saying it, so, but I don't know if it's an original. They The saying is, you're fired the day you are hired. They just don't put that date on the contract. <laughs> well, that's very true. The way I tell people is, Get everything you want before you sign that contract because as soon as you do, they start falling out of love with you. <laughs> so it's a tough profession. You ended up moving to the to the GM side, and I guess you said that's kind of something you always wanted to do. Um, you had good fortune, and maybe not so much because depending on the year of, of of who's coming out, you had didn't you were at Golden State when they had the number one pick in the draft, right? I did, yes. We drafted Joe Smith out of Maryland. And, you know, listen, that's Joe Joe Smith played a while, but, you know, he's not the franchise-changing player that everybody dreams of when you think about having the number one overall pick. What do you remember about the experience of going through that draft and getting to the point where, and from my memory, it was pretty consensus that he was going to be the number one pick. What do you remember about that whole experience? Well, I believe he was player of the year in college. He came out after his sophomore year, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and I had known, 
known a little bit about Joe because he's from the Norfolk area where all the Dominion is. And uh, uh, one of my teammates in college was his high school coach. Oh. So I had tremendous intel on him and everything was extremely positive about Joe. As a matter of fact, his first two years when I was at Golden State, I was only there for two years. Uh, he had very good years. I think he might have been the not co-rookie of the year. He was certainly on the all-rookie team. And it was very, very, we thought Joe was going to be a very good player for a lot of time, a long time. Uh, but I think 2020 hindsight being what it is, maybe I should have taken Barnett. <laughs> he had a pretty decent career too. Garnett was in that draft. I forgot about that. That's right, out of high school, yeah, you know. Maybe I should have brought that up. I forgot about that. But well, listen. I, I mean, you know the nature of the job. But now that I think about it. You played in the ABA with guys who came out of high school. Like Moses Malone was in that league. What do you remember having specific things about Garnett that you weren't sure of, or were your connections with Smith so overwhelming that you kind of that you felt great about that pick? Well. Joe Smith, again, the, the intel we had on him was tremendous. His body of work against better competition, uh, he had at least, uh, I think it was two years of school uh, at Maryland. Uh, so the competition level was good. And, and there's always a concern, and even to the day I got out of the job as far as drafting young people, you know, you never know, one, how money changes them. And now... The money back then and compared to now, it's ridiculous. It's generational money now. Mm -hmm. So you never know how that changes a person. There's always a concern about his physical maturity. Can he play 82 games along with all the practicing? Bigger thing is is the the emotional maturity or lack of maturity. Basketball was always an oasis for these guys. Whenever they struggled with school or a girlfriend or family problems, they go out onto the court. They have success, they come away feeling pretty good about themselves, but as you know, you take that next level into the pros, you might get a lot of help from your player development coaches and your other coaches and the players. It's their livelihood too, you know. I don't think they're going to bend over backwards to really help you. Mm-hmm. So the concern about taking a young guy back then and even now is their emotional maturity. Are, are they tough enough emotionally to handle this and you know, there's, there's nothing in stone where you can give them a test and you look at it and go, oh, yeah, he's ready. There's a big variable there, a lot of unknown. And, and nowadays you're spending a lot of your time back at the college level. You're doing uh, radio and TV work in Old Dominion back at your alma mater. Um they went to the NCAA tournament this past year for the first time in several years. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe that's your first experience ever at the NCAA tournament? It is. It's, uh, I think uh, I, I've been here back doing radio for seven years. It's the first time we've gone to the NCAs. It was a tremendous experience for our guys. Uh, as you know, the crush of the media and the potential distraction because of that, mm-hmm. and you're taken out of your comfort zone because you now there's so much at stake with this, the media exposure. It was an awesome learning experience for a lot of our players. So what did you think of that uh, just for your own 
uh, personal side of, of having spent a lifetime around the game of basketball and getting to be in the environment of an NCAA tournament game. Uh, Old Dominion ended up losing to Purdue. I think the game was up here in Connecticut. Um, yep. Where you know a first round NCAA tournament game still has a lot of buzz around it. I mean, it's 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 like a national holiday in the arena for the first time in your life. What did you think? Well, I got the chance to look at it as a participant, not a basketball participant, but associated with the university. I've been to many NCAA games going into scout, and that is just kind of, well, you go in and you have a job to do. You're looking at four or five players, you make the evaluation, you don't really care about the outcome of it or the ambiance in the building. But when you're associated with the team, you're all in. And uh, it was a it was a tremendous experience for me to see because I had certainly forgotten about how we did going into the NCAAs my junior year. Uh, so it, it, it was uh, it was something where I sat back a little bit and really tried to soak it all in. The fans, uh, the pressure on the players, how they responded, the fans we had coming up to the game. Uh, it's hard to describe. It was a great experience. So I'm wondering now, and I know you told me you don't follow the NBA game as closely since you're not around it anymore, but uh, I wonder what you think of the way the game is, has developed here. You began your professional career in a league that invented the three-point shot, and it's obviously taken on a whole new level in the pro game these days. I, I'm just curious what you think when you do watch a pro game today. Um, what, what do you think of the level of play and the athletes involved? Well, I will admit that it is hard for me to watch the game. Uh, I just think back to our Portland team, how much teamwork we had. Uh, we had five guys playing as one. There was not a lot of one-on-one basketball or isolation. There was a lot of movement, cutting, passing, very unselfish play. Now, if you look at the players nowadays, athletically, by far superior. Uh, much better athletes. They run they run faster, they jump higher, they're much stronger. And don't look at the tools and the resources they have. Strength and conditioning coaches, nutrition, they're fed when they come before practice, there's a meal after practice. Um, so the players physically are by far superior than they were 10 years ago or 20, 30 years ago. What I do think is missing a little bit is a, uh, a feel for the game, an understanding of the game and fundamentals. Uh, I, I use Larry Bird a lot as an example when I talk about this. I, most people would be surprised that if Larry Bird walked in a room, one, how big he is. He's a big human being. He's a legit 6'9". But he could barely jump or didn't, never jumped in a game. Uh, wasn't the fastest guy. Wasn't the quickest guy. But his feel for the game, his knowledge of the game was far superior than anybody else in the league. And I think that's a big reason that he succeeded. Now, his work ethic was unbelievable also. You talk about being the first guy in the gym and the last guy to leave the gym. Sweeney, I can remember going into the Boston Garden. The lights were barely on. There's a ball out there. <laughs> and he's out there shooting. He did not become the great player he did just based on natural ability. So do you lean towards your uh, your one-time employer in Golden State as you look ahead to, to another NBA Finals? Um, we, uh, you know, 
predictions are a really bad part of our business because you're either you're either wrong or you're lucky I think because when you make them but <laughs> as you as you basically uh, as you look at what's coming down now the NBA finals what do you think well of course I was all in with the Blazers but that didn't work out I think anytime you get knocked out you want the team that beat you to win uh, I I just think uh, I, I just think Golden State has just too many weapons and you really, you can't exploit them the way, if you're just watching the, the, the game, you think, well, I, I can attack him off the field. This guy's not a very good defender, but their team defense is so good. But they just have so many weapons. I think they're going to be hard to beat. Dave, listen, um, I, I've long admired you, and the rest of us at Middletown are always shooting for number two because you were far and away uh, the guy that uh, that everybody in that town looks up to as as a guy who's, who succeeded there and has a, a mark made that uh, when you call it, when you talk about fame or, or whatever it is that you want to say it, you're always number one in, in my book and everybody else's. The rest of us are shooting for number two. Thanks for letting me go down memory lane with you a little bit, and uh, and I appreciate the time. Oh, Sweeney, it's always good talking to you. And thanks for the kind words at the end. Go Blue Raiders. And that's my conversation with Dave Twardzik. For those of you who aren't from Middletown, thanks for indulging me, and I hope you enjoyed some of those stories of someone who came from a small town and lived big dreams. In the coming weeks, we'll have some episodes for you centering around the big Baseball Hall of Fame induction coming this summer where former Yankees Mariano Rivera and Mike Messina will headline the ceremonies in Cooperstown. A lot more on those two in the coming weeks. Until then, thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.